Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about plant things. Hi. Hi. How's it going, here? It's good. It's going well. Um, I mean, we both said to each other that we're tired before. I think I, I just we're not we're not allowed to say that on the podcast anymore. That's like this blackballing that. Okay. No, um, but I still feel fine. I'm still happy. I'm still um, I'm I'm doing well. Um, had. Yeah, I had fun today with some like some we read some nice books. We we read like a heartbreaking book that has like a happy ending in the end. And for children, I don't think they really understand it, but um, it has a sort of when undertones you say we, of you migration. Mean you and your two-year-old. Yeah, me and my two-year-old. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it has like it's about like a little character that drags like a big heavy piece of luggage with him, and he tells like some other animals what's in it and has like this whole story it's like his whole life is in there um and then they he falls asleep they open it and it has just like a cup and a picture of his lost home and um then you realize like this little creature is like running away from something and then like the other animals they build him a a new house and everything has a happy end um and for children it's such a just like a simple story but for me it's like heartbreaking to read like this this sad story of that little creature that made all this long way across the ocean um, and then luckily found some nice animals. So I was surprisingly touched by this. I mean, I don't know what it tells about my mental stage that like children, children books make me um, tear up a little bit. Um, but yeah, but this, this, that was... I mean, I think there's, there's also like more of a movement to make books even for very young children more educational and sort of have those... I mean it's always been a thing but i think there's more of a push now like yeah. one of our other friends who has kids just shared something called i think it's called anti-racist baby is the book she said like it's really really good but again it's this idea that you know if you're if a kid is young enough to have racist comments thrown at them so like basically any kid at any age then your kid specifically like you know your white kid is also old enough to be learning about that stuff is, is kind of the discussion that's been happening yeah. so I mean, it's a, that's a whole thing um, that I find quite lacking in many of the classic standard books that we have here in Germany. Um, that is just like all white kids. Uh, we often go to the library and pick up books there. And um, if you don't really pay pay attention, you get books that are just like 100% white kids. Um, I think we've we've discussed this maybe before. There's, there was a study about this and they found that it was much, much, much more common for the protagonist of a story to be like, an animal like a badger or a fox than it was to be like a non-white kid in in many like european american books yeah i mean it changes like a lot of the newer books that are coming out they um are more aware of this and they try to do better and uh, tell interesting stories with like uh, like honestly diverse cast of characters and that's just like a white kid that has like a non-white friend but something where you don't even have to think about did they take all the boxes they just like tell a genuine story that has only black kids for example in it um and it's not like a specifically an anti-racist story it's just like uh, whatever no, it's just like it's, white is not the default that's exactly. like the yeah and so we try to get those when we buy books but like yeah in the library you um i mean it's my, my son is very often picking up the books and he has like horrible taste like i had a book that was full of like monster trucks and large like uh cargo trucks and uh, we were looking at this book so often um and yeah not very interesting for me um but yeah i have very strong memories of like trying to choose a book in the library my mother was just like 
I, I don't think so. Like, no, that's not. That's that's not a good quality book. Like, yeah, but it, it, and it'd it, just be like some trashy, like tweeny thing about you know Unicorn Club or something. Yeah, but at this stage, there's no reasoning that you can't even express. I mean, that his concept. reasoning is trucks, right? His reasoning is, oh, look, there's a truck. Yeah, it has it has wheels, so it must be good. Um, so, yeah. what have you been up to this week? I mean, we just had a long weekend, and I think I mean I saw. Apart from myself and the cat, I saw a total of six people. <gasps> which is scandalous. Not at one time. Not at one time. I mean, one is my housemate and her partner who is like in our bubble. And the other was a group picture that you looked at. <laughs> yes. And my plants are now people, I've decided. So, no. And then I, um, I sort of like reached out to make a friend of somebody at work who lives near me um, in a very kind of like, will you be my friend emailing way. And we met up in the park and then I went down to see another friend and her partner. And then I met like somebody else. Um, then I, like, it was just like, like in the space of, of two days, I met six people, which was <laughs> overwhelming and weird. And yeah, mm -hmm. turns out that being social actually requires practice. And when we don't practice, it, like, it's very much that thing of being, like, outside of your body where you're looking down at yourself, like, am, am I talking too much? Does, does my hand, do my hands always move that much? Like, am I leaning too close? Am what I am I like, doing with my hands? <laughs> what, what, what did we do? With, like, pockets? Do I have pockets? Like, what is, yeah, it's, it's very much this, like, bad acting thing. Um, I would yeah. have paid to see that. I would have liked to be, like, actually I mean, flying above you, like, with a drone and watching you. <laughs> And like with my husband and, and her partner, it's fine. I was like, you know, that's my my kind of bubble. That's my circle. Yeah. And then with the other friend, um, I've sort of seen her a couple of times. So it's okay, her and her husband. But then the, the two other people were like people who were like new mates or people I hadn't met for a while. And that was like, <laughs> um, how do I do? Like even in non-COVID times, I think as an adult, making new friends is kind of a weird thing to be doing, right? Like to be like, hey, Do you want to be my friend? Shall we go to the park and have a coffee? And you can be mm -hmm. my friend. <laughs> like, it's a bit strange already in a normal context. Yeah. And it's even weirder now. On the other hand, I mean, at least, like, now other people are aware of the, the isolation and they're in the same situation. So that's a plus. Um, it's also the thing of um, when you when you move to another country and as, like, an immigrant you are in this situation where you know absolutely nobody like zero and it's quite common at least like what what i think i think is, is common that the the people who they themselves are immigrants they're more ready to embrace you and they know what that feels like whereas if you're in your home country like you already have friends and you have people you've known since you were like three and you, you've got your parents and your family and you've got like enough to do with your time that you don't need to go out of your way to like go to the movie on a day when you don't want to go to the movies but like there's that kind of mm -hmm. immigrant thing where you're like okay let's make the effort to make friends um yeah and now it's happening again in COVID. it's very weird very weird um <laughs> i imagine <laughs> but the world is opening up here now so um in the uk vaccinations are really getting underway i think like above 80% of people like in the 55 plus bracket have been vaccinated and like 20% of the under 55s have been vaccinated um at least with one shot we haven't got like everybody with two shots but it's it's getting it's getting there and it's also like becoming sunnier and like optimism is happening now which is really really nice um i'm jealous of that like uh i don't want to go into any of the sh stuff that's happening here um let's just say it's not like that <laughs> 
<laughs> it's really interesting but to see still, like how. Have, um, although, like, I can't even say that we have like uh, the weather like is getting much better. We had it a, a couple of weeks ago. We had like this burst of spring, and some trees are actually flowering. I have like a bright pink and uh, slightly less pink tree in front of my my window in in the neighbor's garden, and it's so beautiful. Like every day, I look at this and like, ah, oh, this is just nice. Even though the last couple of days over the long long weekend, we had like actual snowstorms. Um, I mean, like, we had we, snow as well, to be fair, but it was yeah. So um, the weather was like a little bit cold and like hunkering down again and putting on an extra layer. Um, but still, like you can tell that nature is like coming back to life and you have like all these beautiful flowers. We have like this apricot tree in the garden and the other day was like buzzing with bees and all kinds of like honeybees, but also some wild bees. And then we had like last year already, we had this large uh, wood bee. Like it's it's really, it's almost as big as my thumb really heavy dark black is that a bumblebee like, or is it different it's a, it's a different thing and um they they are solitary bees that live in the woods um and they are very um true to like uh what is like uh they stay at the same location um and so we had we saw them last year when we had like a, a specific plant that they quite like um and we saw it again this year so i guess it must be the same bee or offspring of the same bee living in the same area um <laughs> I, mean, I don't know nice. if it's, I don't know if it's the same bee. I mean, we have a rat that visits our garden and my housemate has named the rat Benjamin. And based on this fiction, we now have a single rat whose name is is Benjamin. <laughs> and by acknowledging the presence of this single rat who is a very polite gentlemanly rat called Benjamin, we can pretend we don't have a rodent problem. Like there's just one of them. <laughs> we know him by name. It's fine. It's not like a swarm of <laughs> rats in our backyard. <laughs> you might have more than one bee is all I'm saying. And it might not be the same bee or the family of the bees that you met before. Although they, they say that they, they, yeah, they are quite solitary and they're not that common here. So, um, and because we always, all, only ever saw one i thought it might just be one i think it's called a carpenter bee in english um i'm just looking it up uh but anyway yeah I, we saw this bee that you usually don't really see around and we i only ever saw this bee in my garden i never saw it anywhere else in in the neighborhood or in other parts of berlin so i imagine that it's like not, not the most common thing um, I don't know for how long they live. Um, I have no idea, but I would imagine like being that big, I would imagine that they might go through several years, but I don't know. Um, but still, I saw this massive, big black. It's like also very loud, um, quite intimidating. But when you read up on them, you know that they're completely harmless. They can't sting you. Um, like if you if you really annoy them, they could potentially bite you, but it's extremely rare. Um, so they're it's really, really nice. harmless. It has like a a dark black body and then kind of a like a fluffy gold around its its neck it's like a little lion bee i would call it i think that's, yeah that's the name and this has like this dark shimmering thing they look like there's some characters in the star wars universe that are like stormtroopers but completely black wow and they mm -hmm. look like the, the the bees look like them or they they look like the bees like shiny black intimidating but in the end they don't hit anything are completely harmless disney um, should sue the bees <laughs> yes um so yeah that, that was is really disney nice. litigious do they sue a lot i don't know i guess disney so. i think so yes like oh there's the mickey mouse isn't there like a mickey mouse copyright law that like it's about how long a like maybe a cartoon character or something can stay in copyright and there's this thing where it was that law was getting extended that just happened to coincide with when mickey mouse was coming into 
Yeah. Yeah. Something I think like the, 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 I think the, I've heard that. The lawyers are massively lobbying in favor of like stricter copyright rules. I mean, allegedly, allegedly they're massively <laughs> lobbying. <laughs> no, you know that like there's this thing. I mean, this is mass massive tension, but there's this thing that there's bots online when you when like an artist posts a picture and you're like, I would love to have this on a t-shirt. A bot picks this up and creates sort of a fake like a, a store where you can buy that and then it's printed on demand. And it's quite annoying for the artists because they don't see a cent of this and it's all automated. Um, so uh, it's it's really annoying. And so people started putting up like pictures from with like Disney characters and other people would comment like, I would la love to have this on a t-shirt. And then like Disney would have its own sort of automated systems for, for finding copyright infringements. And then we would take down these automated stores. And for a while, at least a, a few years ago, there was this thing where Disney would actually like take down a couple of these stores um, because they would just like automatically print a picture of Mickey Mouse and Disney was like, I'm not I having think, any of I this. I think I know where you've heard this. I think you've heard this through the Baby Geniuses podcast. That could be. Like, I have, yeah, that's quite likely that I heard it there. I also picked a, a, a fight on Twitter, but I don't know if you want to talk about this now or later or not. I at want all. to talk about it now. Let's talk about it now. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the background is there's uh, somebody. Should I name them? I don't want to really shame them, so I don't really want to name them either. Look, to be honest, I had a look into it. So, I've there's there was a paper that was published, and somebody tweeted about the paper. And the paper is the in like a fairly good. The paper tweeted about The it. first author tweeted. Um, the paper is in a fairly good. Um, paper it's not like a like predatory journal or anything um i i read only the abstract in the introduction so i haven't read like everything um but it seems like not terrible like it's 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 like scientifically done it seems like valid and everything um but <laughs> what was the problem you had yaram i think we can start with that uh, it started like it started with a tweet by the first author and it had a picture of um two bees or bumblebees um both had a pin th through their back so both are dead but i mean these were test specimen and one says like large like sprayed with water and it's sort of just like a wet bumblebee um wet, fluffy bee uh, still quite fluffy and yeah you you imagine that they can get wet and they are fine unless somebody puts a pin through them. And then the second picture has like... Which, can I just comment, like, half of the comments for people <laughs> being like, those bees died from the pins, not from the <laughs> the other experimental day. Like, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, because it then says on the other one, sprayed with herbicide. And then it's like a very sad looking bee, a uh, bumblebee, where all of its like fluff is completely stuck to its body. Like, it's it looks much wetter and sadder and deader. Um and the tweet along it says, like, new research roundup, the world's most used weed killer can kill bumblebees, exclamation point. Why this is important and what it means for pesticides, a threat. And then it goes on through the results of the paper talking about how glyphosate-based weed killers are used a lot and how they found in their study that when you spray that on a bumblebee, it dies. Um, and it dies quicker and more often than when you spray it with water, which mm -hmm. hardly ever kills them. And they did this well, experiment the where they put the bees like in boxes. And sprayed it them or bumblebees and sprayed them directly with a number of different herbicides and with water as a control. I um, mean, always like in group of five to six animals. I think it was like what thirty percent of them died with water and ninety percent died when they sprayed them with the herbicides. Was that is that correct? I think so. Yes. Um, I mean, there were some issues with the figures that I couldn't fully read them, but um, uh, I think. 
Now, only 4% died in the controls, uh, even less, but in in one of the other herbicides, because then they had herbicides that had glyphosate in them and herbicides that didn't have glyphosate in them, but from the same company. And they also had glyphosate formulations that had different sort of additives in them. So that Mm -hmm. would contain glyphosate, but the rest of it would be different, sort of the liquid, the, the solution that the glyphosate sits in. Um, yeah, so just the background of that is like when you get a glyphosate herbicide, it's not like all just pure glyphosate in water. There's other in there and the other stuff in there is to actually, it basically helps the, the glyphosate being more effective by helping it like to penetrate or to stay longer on the leaves or, you know, these kind of things. Yeah, glyphosate itself is actually quite hydrophobic, so it doesn't really mix with water. So you always need to add some sort of helping molecules in there, something like in the simplest terms, soap, but they work much differently than, than soap, but they essentially break the surface tension soap. and help the glyphosate to actually get where it can act in, in the plant. Um, and so uh, they di- directly sprayed the bumblebees, which in itself is like... They also say that in the, th- in the Twitter thread and in the original paper that um, this is not replicating field conditions um, because mm-hmm. you usually don't spray flowering plants um, when there's pollinators around them. That's usually Which, not the uh, conditions when you spray them, but you can still hit them. Yeah, having said that, I think what was raised in the article, which is very important, is that for herbicides, you don't have specific regulations about that. So if it was an insecticide, something designed to kill insects, there would be rules saying, okay, you can't shoot this insecticide directly at the face of a bee, and you also can't use it like when there's yeah. more likely to be bees around, which is was when it's, the plants are flowering. But those rules are not there for herbicides. And I thought that was like a really valid criticism of the current like regulations we have for using glyphosate, which is a herbicide, not an insecticide. Yeah, because what they found was that um, the bees that would die were, would only die when specific formulations of um, the compound were used independent of the presence of glyphosate. So um, there were glyphosate-free herbicides that would kill the bumblebees and there were glyphosate-containing herbicides that would kill the bumblebees, probably because of these surfactants, these additives, these detergent-like structures that help it sort of cling uh, more to it. And you can imagine like the bee evolutionary has adapted to being quite water-repellent so that a drop of water doesn't immediately stick to it and kill it but if you have something that's different from water this can sort of glue up all of the hairs and specific uh, essentially suffocate the bumblebee and this is the finding and i think this is like solid science like this is a proper finding to say look there's compounds in the in the herbicides that are not the main active ingredient but they can be harmful and they can kill insects when when applied in the wrong way. And I think that's an absolutely valid point. But the and way it's a cool finding, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> in the context of the the general discussion that happens around glyphosate, which is that active ingredient, I think that is like an interesting finding and an important finding. Yeah. No, I, I agree. But <laughs> I would even like to to see more. Like, um, mm-hmm. when you already do this experiment and they just used water as a control, um, you could have used other um, liquids with other surface properties in water, like like a soap solution in different concentrations, because that's often also used um, to to fight pests on on plants. I mean, we all had to tip that if you have like these little uh, mites or lice on on the plants, you just spray them with a soap solution. And it would have been interesting if that's actually harmful to flying insects like bumblebees. So if you should take more care when you apply this in your garden. Um, so this was some and stuff think, that I was missing. Again, like, 
yeah, the authors had like a valid argument, which is what that they don't actually know what those extra ingredients like the soapy things are in the roundup because that's kind of trademarked by the company. Mm-hmm. So Monsanto, which is now Bayer. So they, they couldn't do the proper controls, but they still could have done some like kind of cheap soapy controls, right? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I could always like in, in hindsight, you can always say like, oh yeah, this study could have done so many more controls. Yeah, yeah you can always add more controls or more experimental conditions. So I don't know. Like, it's not yeah, a comment not on the re- science being bad. It's something more like we would like to see that would be interesting in the future. What, what struck me was the framing of the whole thing, starting with this like very graphic picture of this like, water bee and the bee sprayed with herbicide and then claiming that it's like look roundup is killing bumblebees so so again this is not the the paper this is the way the paper was tweeted by the first author exactly that mm-hmm. was sort of um how it made the rounds on twitter and i first saw this tweet and was like oh yeah the, the framing is not so nice but whatever but i saw, saw this popping up several times in my timeline with different comments and i looked at also the people commenting on this and you could tell already that the people who like the narrative that glyphosate is uh, evil poison that's killing us all brought up by big corporations, these people were immediately taking this as evidence for their ideas about the world. Um, because it is framed in such an ambigu- ambiguous way that you can really put this into the narrative because it says Roundup kills bumblebees. And yeah, only so a the, couple the, tweets the, down. The exact tweet is new research. Round up the world's most used weed seller can kill bumblebees and then something else. But the problem is, I think, I mean, Roundup is is used very interchangeably with glyphosate. Like that's kind of the current understanding is that Roundup is that active ingredient glyphosate. So that's yeah. a bit terrifying. And you can see in the comments on the tweet that people have taken it like that because they, they then make comments responding saying how, you know, glyphosate should be banned or, you know, they are interpreting it to mean glyphosate. Yeah, and it's um, like 12 tweets into the thread is the first time when it's mentioned that they also use a control that contains glyphosate that actually harms the bees less than water. So mm-hmm. um, you have to read through 11 tweets before you get to the point that it's not actually glyphosate in Roundup but something else in Roundup that's killing them, really. I mean, there's mentioning of the surfactants before, but like the specific point about not, it not being glyphosate comes quite late. And this is when I, um, yeah, I, I tweeted about it and had a little back and forth with the author about um, like my interpretation, where I was just saying, like, look, it's the surfactants, it's the additives, and not really the glyphosate. And I think it's important to frame it like this because otherwise it will be misunderstood. And if you look at the comments underneath and also like the quote tweets, you see that people take this already to form their argument against glyphosate when this research, if at all, proves that glyphosate doesn't have an effect on bumblebees because the one control that contains glyphosate but no additives is actually less harmful than water. Um so, um, yeah, that, that annoyed me a little bit today, but it was also interesting to then talk to other people who saw it in a, in a similar way and then also um, had the first author respond. So overall, I think it was like a constructive thing and not sort of like a bad Twitter experience that's just bringing um, mean ideas into the world and make uh, ruins everybody's uh, day. Um, I mean, I, I imagine... Like, I mean, it's always fun for me. I'm just doing my daily work and then suddenly my phone is like, ping, 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 ping. <laughs> it's like, oh, look, Yarim is arguing about GMOs and related products again. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that an- annoyed me 
um, that I came to defense to, to defend here, like a large corporation, which is not really my <laughs> cup of tea usually. I mean, you know, ever um, since Monsanto I, was bought out by Bayer, Yoram, he's just got that patriotic spirit, and he's just he's got to support them. Yeah, no, it's it's really it annoyed me. It annoyed me uh, in terms of the framing because, like, framing and communication is sort of what I do for a living. And um, when I see that done badly with the immediate effects, like it immediately is now munition for the people who like to say glyphosate will kill us all, um, even though there's, to put it mildly, a lot of debate around that claim, um, if it's not completely debunked. Um, so like bad framing like this, even if it's like solid science underneath, but if you frame it weirdly on social media, you're doing more harm than good. And yeah, it's interesting because like also the way it said it says round up the world's most used weed killer can kill bumblebees. And I mean, I could say water, the world's most common liquid can kill bumblebees. Like it absolutely can. I can like hold a bumblebee underwater and he can like just keep on holding him down and I can kill a bumblebee with or like air, the world's, <laughs> I don't know, oxygen <laughs> can kill bumblebees. I'm sure like if you inject oxygen into i don't bees don't have a bloodstream but like into the i don't know lymph what do bugs have like (laughs) i don't know juices of a bumblebee you can probably make some sort of embolism i don't know like that the way of stating it it, it's like it's it's absolutely true and it could be true of anything but yeah yeah it's it's missing a very key point and that's that seems problematic but yeah yeah i mean to be fair the first offer they also said that um, they were looking at, uh, wait, it's not risk that they w- were looking at, but hazard. So these are two different things. Hazard is sort of the potential to cause harm and risk is that times like how likely it is that it can actually cause harm. Also, also in our tweet, Yoram, like Yoram, not me, <laughs> Yoram put, um, the presence of glyphosate has no effect on bee survival, which sounds like, like an ultimate statement as opposed yeah, to just like the finding of this paper so you should have been like in this paper <laughs> there was no i mean there's there's some like shortening like, in there but um that's the problem want- with twitter you know you've got those what 200 and something characters yeah yeah but uh, in this specific study the glyphosate where was sort of out of question to to be harming the bees like it's at least like i mean this picture is just horrible like <laughs> Yeah. I don't anyway. even know if that second one is a B. Looks like a fly <laughs> to me. <laughs> anyway, that was sort of what what brought me through my day today of of like arguing <laughs> with strangers or sort of not even arguing, having a little back and forth and um and then to also, get the right thing out. Then also I get a five minute long message, a voice message <laughs> explaining why there's an argument going on, on Twitter. Yeah, I didn't know if you would read it, and I would have. I had to give you some some context, but uh, like in hindsight, knowing that you would like get all of the notification was like very mansplaining, and I'm sorry for that. It wasn't mansplaining; it was just like, oh dear. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Um, so that <laughs> was Joram explains Twitter. Um, shall we talk a little bit about plant science? Okay, so the plant I want to um, talk about today is just a short one, um, but it's one of the plants that kind of belongs to our 
model plant species, these kind of lab rats that scientists like to use to understand not that species itself, but the basic way how plants work. So, Yoram, I'm going to share with you a photo mm-hmm. um, on the document. Can you just like click it and tell me what the plant looks like? Just, you know, try not to look at the, the descriptors on Google and just like say what what that plant yeah. seems to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing it here. And to be honest, it looks like Arabidopsis, but I think we talked about Arabidopsis before. So, I'm confused. <laughs> It's not, it's not Arabidopsis, but it is a cousin of Arabidopsis, um, as Yoram like, correctly identified, I guess. It has like um, physical similarity to Arabidopsis. Although, interesting, um, the, the picture that I showed you, it shows this kind of classic rosette, so like the sort of two-dimensional plant lying on the ground that we associate with Arabidopsis. And this is also how this plant, um, which is called Eutrema salsuginium, that's how that plant looks when you grow it in a lab environment. But actually, when this plant grows in the wild, it doesn't really make rosette leaves. It basically is just like goes straight to making this kind of stalk. And the mm-hmm. stalk has lots of stemmy bits off. And it's, it looks much more chaotic. And it looks it looks almost a bit like a desert plant if you see it in the wild. Um, which I guess is not really surprising because if you see Arabidopsis in the wild, it also, you know, it looks a bit small. It's, you know, rub- like thick and, and purple and angry and like... Yeah. But then you also often find it like between, like in the cracks of the sidewalk, or like, yeah. like <laughs> we, we pamper it in the greenhouse, and like, and it gets like the right soil and the perfect nutrient combination and water every day, and then <laughs> it looks nice and green and lush and the way you imagine it, and then you go outside and you see like somewhere, hopefully not too close to the institute, um, some Arabidopsis <laughs> plants on the sidewalk, yeah, and they're like angry and purple and deformed, and but they still survive and grow and it's similar with this plant yeah and i guess like if arabidopsis is found within the cracks of the sidewalk then this utrema species would be found on like i don't know the cracks of the moon or the cracks of i i don't know it's it's found in the the whole point of the species is it's found in very extreme locations um and before we go on to that i just want to mention that it is a member of the, the Brassicaceae family. So this is like the mustard plant family that Arabidopsis is found in. Um, things like um, rapeseed also belong there, like broccoli, um, cabbage, stuff like that. That's all in this like big family. Um, but the Eutremas, this genus Eutrema, also contains another very famous plant species, um, which is called Eutrema japonicum. So if you think of a mustard plant that has that name Eutrema japonicum, can you maybe easily guess what that is? Yeah, I think like if I think of like mustardy, s- spicy flavors, I think of wasabi was- or wasabi in from, from Japan. It's related that's then, the right? One. Or that's the thing. Yeah, so I guess like, you know, Arabidopsis and our Eutrema are like second cousins twice removed, but Eutrema um, wasabi and our Eutrema are, I don't know, cousins or even siblings um, in this this comparison. So yeah, um, as I said, Eutrema salsuginium is really famous for living in like weird environments. Specifically, it's famous for living in extreme conditions. And one of the clues for its ability to do that also comes in its previous name. So it's it's quite recently been renamed to this Eutronum. Before that, it was called um, dun, 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 Phalangiella halophilia. Yeah, just seeing the name spelled out, it's like, <laughs> that's not easy to pronounce. Phalangiella. Yeah, it's really hard. 
No, I, I think you did great. I'm just looking at it it's like, wow, this is like whoever named this um, did not like it's, it's their fellow botanists who have to pronounce the name afterwards. Um, but the halophilia in that name kind of hints at one of the, the special powers of the plant, which is an ability to love salt. Mm hmm. Although in this case, the the naming as Thalangiella halophilia is actually like, it's wrong. It's a completely different species. So, I mean, this is kind of what we see in, in all botany these days, that things keep on getting renamed as we have different and better genetic information about who actually belongs to what species and what subspecies and, and mm -hmm. which family. Um, but in any case, um, this Utrema has an ability to survive in really salty conditions, but also under drought, also under low nitrogen, um, different like sort of cold or freezing conditions, um, and all of these different extremes. So it, it's basically classified as an extremophile. Um, so it's found kind of across lots of Asia and North America, um, to the Rocky Mountains um, in northeastern Mexico, so really quite diverse um, environments. Although, as we've, we've mentioned, I think, before with Arabidopsis, this is the one species, but there are also different ecotypes um, or sort of like races within the species. So there are like different kind of populations of plants that have specific adaptations to certain environments. So maybe, you know, there's a... a a race or a, an ecotype that is found on the Rocky Mountains and they might have been there for thousands and thousands of generations and they've kind of got their own special adaptation to those environments over there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, anyway, I think you can probably guess why scientists are interested in this plant. It's basically that it's closely related to our favourite model plant, but it has these kind of special features. And those two things combined means it's really great to compare with Arabidopsis, to compare with what we already know from Arabidopsis and see where the differences are at the genetic level, at the, you know, kind of mo molecules it makes, how its enzymes work, how it grows, how it, you know, responds to stress. See these in sort of real terms and, and then sort of make those comparisons and, and make the links between the phenotype, what we see and how the plant grows and sort of the genotype. So what genes there are, um, that encode that. So because of that, um, this Utrema species, I think, was uh, had its genome sequenced fairly early, um, 2013 maybe, but there was also some sort of looks into it a little bit earlier than that either, even. Um, and since then, people have sort of been having a look at how the comparisons do work. It is a bit interesting because it has quite a large sequence compared to Ramadopsis. So it's got... Um, seven chromosomes instead of five chromosomes, um, although chromosome number is not the most important thing, but it also has like about twice as many letters in its genomic um, code. And one suggestion has been that this kind of duplication is because of, of the stress and that, you know, living in stressful condition has sort of activated the sort of um, elements in the genome, transposons, like transposable elements that kind of help shift genes around and duplicate genes and this shifting and duplication can actually be a really good way to sort of develop new genes with new functions which might help you survive stress but um it's not really certain if this is you know evolutionary true and actually apparently the interest the the opposite conclusion has been also reached in plants so some people have said oh look look at these like resurrection plants or these like special carnivorous plants their specialization to really weird environments has occurred by losing a lot of genes and only having a very small amount of genes and, you know, very specialized genes. So it's, it's, it's not really um, certain 
what it is. Yeah, but anyway, that's our species of the day. It's Euthrema salsuginium, and it's a relative of Arabidopsis. And yeah, we like these these relatives because it helps us understand more things that our favorite lab rat can't really tell us because it has its own limitations. Uh, so this week it's my turn um, and I had somebody do my homework, but not this week, but already back in February. I asked on Twitter for some suggestion of people that are inspiring to our followers and uh, Danilo Daloso um, replied to that and uh, they t um, suggested Berta Lange de Moretes, um, who's a botanist from Brazil. And um, I'm very thankful for that because it was like a nice um, read into into her. Um, she lived from 1917 to 2016. Um, that means she she lived to the the age of 99 years, which is in itself quite impressive. Uh, and 70 of those years she spent uh, working as a professor at the University of Sao Paulo. Um, she was born in in Germany, but already at a young age of two, um, her family moved to Brazil. Uh, her father is from Brazil originally. Um, And so they, they moved there and um, she, she studied there. And then quickly after her graduation in 1941, she became a professor. And then working as a, as a professor in botany was pretty much her, her life goal. Um, it was what she spent, uh, kept on doing, but she was also doing it with a passion. Um, another researcher who uh, was citing her in um, an encyclopedia on plant anatomy uh, stated that without her work in plant anatomy, little would be known about the structure of plants from Brazilian eco ecosystems. Um, she did a lot of field trips um, and what I quite liked about her um, from, from what I read is that she not only sort of went on on field trips and sort of went in there, collected plant specimen, cataloged them in one, some way and went away again. Um, like you, like if you just would focus on purely the collection of specimen, that's enough already, but she would always uh, immerse herself in the local culture. She would talk to residents and photograph the towns and would integrate that then later to into her research to give a broader context um, to to these specimens that she found um, to integrate them in sort of the the natural but also sort of human made environment that these plants were growing in when she was uh, taking her samples um, to the point that she collected a large um, uh, yeah collection of, of photos that are currently being restored and catalogued and that they will be eventually um, be also on display so all of her additional work in itself created this body of knowledge that will now be also made available to the public. Um, and cool. she, yeah, she, she, she said herself that the pleasure of teaching and helping people in search of knowledge always comes first to her. Um, she was really eager to teach um, students about plant anatomy, not only doing the, the research herself. And that's why also she, she continued for so long as a professor because at her own wishes, she was made sort of an honorary professor who could continue working even during her retirement, which It's always um, technically um, you're out of work at one point, but when you're really passionate about this, she managed to convince the university um, to, to work for longer and keep teaching and keep doing lab courses and field work with students, uh, sharing, sharing her passion for, for plants. <laughs> uh, and her, her last wish was um, 
that she was actually that her that she was becoming part of the campus uh, of the Institute of Bioscience, and so her ashes were de uh, deposited at the base of a Pau Brasil plant, which is uh, called also Brazil wood, um, a woody tree um, that's harvested for for its wood, and uh, a seedling of the Tabernae Montana Solanifolia. Uh, where I try to find a more common name, but I don't know, like all I could find, it's like a native Brazilian plant, um, a Cerrado plant. Um, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's about her there. Um, she, there was like an obituary about her and also like a nice article that we're linking in, in the show notes. And I found that quite inspiring to have this, like this much, much passion for, for like your local regional plant world um, that she, she went out and not only did the field work, but then also um, inspired students uh, to, to be interested in, in the world of, of regional local um, plants. So that was Berta Lange de Moretes, um, who lived from 1917 to 2016 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Very nice. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. And the bias I'm going to talk about today is actually something that was published in a paper in Nature just yesterday on the 7th of April 2021. And I just want to start with a quick disclaimer that I haven't read the paper. Um, Boo. <laughs> I'm super lazy and I did my homework like 20 minutes before we came onto the podcast and I couldn't <laughs> find a, a, a version that was um, in front of the paywall so everything was paywalled but I like literally half an hour ago I tweeted at the author and said hey can you share your author copy so like as some of you know and as Yoram you know has recently commented on his own Twitter often when you publish something, you get an author copy that you're allowed to share. Um, and I tweeted at her and she like immediately, all of them, and they like immediately um, responded and sent that back in. So there is now a read cube link to the full paper that can be found on um, the Twitter profile of the first author of the study. So um, that's Gabrielle Gabe um, Adams. Um, anyway, um, what I did do is <laughs> look through obviously the abstract, but also, um, there's a really great nature video about this, um, which we'll also link to. And, you know, I should actually say the name of the study at this point, which is people systematically overlook subtractive changes. So this is basically the idea that when we see a problem and we want to fix it, we want to improve on, on, on something that's not great, we have this tendency, maybe even this cognitive bias, um, or at least a bias that makes us more likely to add things to fix a problem rather than just removing them. Um, so the first example they show is a really simple kind of building block exercise where you have sort of a a little house with a roof, um, but there's unevenness in one of the pillars. So there's like one extra pillar. So the roof, um, which should have four pillars, only has one. And so it's kind of leaning. It's hanging off this, this one pillar. And if they ask people to make this structure more stable, people have the tendency to go and look for three more blocks to, to, to make a stable structure instead of just like taking that one block away. And what I really, really like is it came through in this nature video that the like senior author or the last author in the paper, who is um, Lady Klotz, 
he actually sort of came upon this idea while first playing Lego with his son. So apparently they were making a bridge and the bridge was like not level and it needed to have a block added. And he like sort of turned around to go and like find that extra block to add it on. And by the time he got back, his son Ezra had just like ripped it off and thrown it away. And like this kid just had this like sort of thing of like, get rid of that block. But his immediate thought had been to like add something for stability, which is kind of the this basis of this additive instead of subtractive um, change. So in the video, this, this author, um, Klutz, also talks about these ideas of how we should reach perfection that have come up historically. He, he quotes Leonardo da Vinci talking about how you know, perfection is achieved when nothing else can be taken away. Um, there's also um, Lao Tzu, who um, has a saying that has something to do with um, gaining knowledge is about adding all the time and gaining wisdom is about removing, subtracting all the time. So he sort of talks about this um, scientific idea that they've just published in the context of like old school wisdom about how to, to reach like the best um, state. But yeah, basically the study is sort of that, that they found that people had this tendency to um, add something instead of subtracting it. Um, so I think without being like in, in a kind of neutral situation, 41% of people, I'm not entirely sure, you can check the paper, now there's a link, um, took away that block, um, whereas like the majority of them, so 60% of them added the extra block. So like the, the, the tendency was to add these extra blocks instead of removing and there's a cynic in me who like is really terrible about at using Lego and Duplo. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's just, it's hard to pry those <laughs> apart. Like it's just, it's quite difficult. It's much easier to put two Lego pieces together than to take them apart. Am I wrong? Yeah, that in, in the first place. And also often when you build a structure, having it higher is usually what you go for. Like if you have a bridge, usually want to have something passing underneath that. And I know that from experience because my little boy constantly wants me to build bridges so he can push his cars underneath. And if the bridge is wonky and would take something away, the car might not fit anymore. So I would always add something because I know as soon as like one car passes, he will take the next bigger car and try to make it pass under the bridge again. Um, so having more height is usually better than just removing one. So that's my, okay, so my that reasoning how sense. I would go to... <laughs> To justify it adding makes, more blocks. makes some sense in the bridge scenario, but that wasn't a kind of condition of the, the balance structure scenario. And also what was interesting is that the they added like kind of a condition where they said, okay, if you add something, each extra block costs, let's say, 10 cents, but it's free to remove something. And then people were like, oh, and then they started removing things instead of adding things. So it wasn't that they wanted the highest structures. It was kind of like there was this like, weird cost thing i would but, immediately okay. remove everything and start selling it to other participants and then make a fortune and then be like checkmate scientist wow so <laughs> yoram is a cynic a skeptic and a capitalist, capitalist. pig <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah if you are still skeptical um they also did different experiments so one was they have sort of 10 by 10 grids and there's like patterns of colored in squares within those grids and again you've got a pattern it's, it's slightly asymmetrical and they say make it symmetrical and again people would add something to make it symmetrical and they were told like if you subtract that actually uses less clicks than if you add but people would still have a tendency to add things um and i think in, in total they did maybe eight different experiments um to look at this in different ways 
sorry, it's not just the Lego thing and it's not just people having sore fingers from prying the Lego um, apart. It does seem to be sort of a, a bit of a, a general idea that our default position is to search for additive transformations and sort of overlook the subtractive ones. Um, yeah, it's eight different experiments, at least. I'm not sure if it's eight different conditions, like, you know, one is Duplo and one is matches. I think it's just eight experiments, but with some different conditions as well. But anyway, um, I think it's quite interesting. And they, they also mention how this is kind of a problem. It's a problem when we have problems if we just want to add things, right? So the yeah, example they give like, like I, I, I immediately think of um, when for work we're trying to come up with, I don't know, let's say a website and uh, we start thinking about like what could we add to it um, or like we have some stuff that we start with and then we're like, oh yeah, but what about the, these people and we have to add this content to it and we have to add this other stuff to it and we can add this on top of there and then also like more social media and, all, and, and so on. And you end up with something that's like more effort and worse, uh, where like the smart thing would have been to subtract everything that's like nece not necessary to like your main goal, and then just have like a very lean, like focused thing that you do um, and get back better work done. And that really like the, the story reminds me of that because I've been in meetings where we were trying to focus and people were constantly just like throwing stuff on there and being like, but what about this? Like we need to add the thing about this as well. And then you had like another section, another sub menu where like, Oh yeah, we can plug that in here and talk about like this narrow thing uh, as well on our website. Um, or for like, like over design would be the problem. Yeah. And not, not thinking like you, you, you're sitting there, you, you, you agree that we want to change something. We want to adapt it. And the only thing that we do is adding instead of removing. Um, I've been in lots of meetings like this. And I think it's quite interesting to know that this is sort of a way of like default thinking that might have to be overcome. Like maybe you need a little activation energy. Maybe you have to like tell them at the beginning of the meeting, look, everything that we add comes at a cost and removing something doesn't cost us anything. Maybe that's is already like a mindset a help for the mindset to i mean it actually it it does seem so i was listening to i think an episode of no such thing as a fish a couple of weeks back and they were talking about playing chess and they said it's really easy to tell when a computer is playing chess instead of a human still because when humans plan something in chess they have sort of like they plan their moves but they're really unwilling to go backwards so if you like move one piece too forward And then the conditions change because of what your opponent does. And that piece should be go back to exactly where it was. Humans basically never do that. We never like reset, like undo a move that we've already done. Whereas the computer is always making the perfect, you know, it's examining everything that's making like the, the, the move with the best probability of winning. And that often involves undoing things. And to me, it's kind of a similar mentality, like mm -hmm. this desire to not undo what's already there and instead to like keep going forward even if continuously going forward is worse yeah. um the examples they give also is something like an overburdened schedule so like you know adding more meetings to like organizing that are already like you know more and more um increasing red tape so bureaucracy and the the very obvious thing which i also like immediately springs to my mind is like environmental issues so i mean climate change big one you know we've got a problem quick let's create a new I don't know, super cockroach that gobbles up carbon as a mitigation strategy instead of like, hey, like we know the solution, just take away the freaking burning of the fossil. Like yeah. <laughs> this, so I think um, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's it's a really I love the background. I love that he kind of came at this from seeing his child and having this the other example he gave with his child is something that's always bugged me, which is like when we were kids growing up, when you learned to ride a bicycle, you had like a bicycle two wheels and then you had these two stupid training wheels on the side of the bike. And they're slightly offset. So basically at all times, the child is riding on three wheels. So the two wheels of the bicycle and leaning on one side and like leaning on one of the training wheels. Never The, the two training wheels themselves are never touching the ground at the same time because they're a little bit like yeah. higher than the real wheels. And this actually makes it much harder for children to learn to ride when they have to let ride because the balance is completely different. Like with the training wheels on versus without the training wheels on. And it's only about like, what, five years ago that somebody realized that instead of adding more wheels, you just need to take off the pedals. And now you see kids everywhere running on these bikes where it's like, it's got two wheels, it's got the same balance, it's got the same like conditions of physics. So like, if you don't go fast enough, the bike will topple over. Like you have to either put your legs down or the bike will fall unless you're going fast enough. Like this is all the same as a real bicycle. And that was achieved by removing the wheels. And that's something that mm-hmm. also um, Lady Klotz talks about with his son and this kind of subtractive way of thinking as opposed to like the much less successful additive way of thinking of adding these training wheels. So I just, I really like these ideas. I think it's it really cool. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a really cool thing. Like I will, I will keep that in mind definitely. Like this will come up again in the future for me. That's really, really cool. Yeah, and definitely um, go and check out not just the article, which you can find via Gabriella Adams, but also do look at the video because I think it's, it's really nice to kind of see the, the background story. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Um, I have something uh, that I found quite uh, interesting as well. Maybe it even fits with sort of this subtractive thinking um, because it's taking something back. It's removing something um, that we sort of introduce in the first place. Um, and this story is about streams, uh, water streams, um, specifically in this case in the United States, but I think a lot of the principles apply in ma- uh, to, to many countries. Uh, and these streams, um, specifically like smaller streams that you can sort of just leap across, not like bigger rivers, um, they are very seasonal in many parts of the United States, where sometimes during summer they run out of water and then... Um, after the winter, when the snow melts in the mountains, they sort of take up water again. Um, mm-hmm. And they're very important for the environment um, because they are yeah, providing water to, the, to, to wetlands uh, uh, and to the wildlife living there and so on. Uh, but the problem is that during our sort of development of, of the environment, we sort of um, accelerated these streams they go now in more often in straight lines much quicker and that sort of just lets the water run off very quickly and go into the next bigger body of water and that makes sort of all of the the, the land around the streams doesn't see much of the water that's also because um, partly due to uh, specifically in the united states beaver hunting so beavers who would build dams and sort of slow down the water flows they were hunted and so there were no more dams the water would go faster um, and so now there is um, a restoration efforts done uh, where people like a lot of volunteers come together and they construct very simple structures uh, from like stones and and, and wood um, that 
slow down the water bodies and they create like smaller ponds or they create sort of the starting ground for beavers to then uh, that could then be resettled and they actively catch beavers some somewhere and bring them to these these streams um, and have them resettle um, because what I didn't know and like I, I sent you earlier today I sent you a video um, where they had like a little very cute stop motion that's linked in the article as well and you can uh, look at that and you can sort of see what the beavers are doing when they build a dam first of all that builds a pond and that's very good because then you have like a larger body of water that so slowly goes into the groundwater and nourishes the whole environment there but what i didn't know is that beavers they are very clever when they want to construct wood to build their dams they they bur they dig little canals from their pond to the trees and then have to like have the trees fall into the, the canal and then they can drag They're it in the water yeah they can float the logs to their dams and that's how they can build quite large structures and it also means these beavers, these like small animals. I mean, they're as big as a cat or something, approximately. Um, I think bigger, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But they're they're digging like this whole network of canals where they live, and this again slows down the water and also has the water sort of seep into a much larger area. And in the article, they actually talk about the, the environment working as a sponge. And by slowing down water, you give it the, this sponge a chance to actually soak up all of the water and retain it for a longer time, which means that some of these areas they don't even dry out anymore in summer they stay wet all year long until the the, the wet season begins again next spring and um, so that has like massive impacts on on the environment there like the, you get more more species settling there again just by constructing these these like little structures but also and this is the the uh, biggest uh, factor here i think is um that wildfires they don't really like to burn where the area is really wet and so there's there are some pictures also in the article that are super cool you see like this this burnt barren land and then you have like a green oasis around a beaver dam where the water from the beaver dam supplied uh the the surrounding area stay completely green and everything where the water didn't reach is black from the fire um amazing so they are using this now as a way to prevent wildfires or at least to to uh, reduce the impact of wildfires by having sort of along these streams these very water-rich barriers where the fires can't easily go across and also this protects then sort of pockets of green from which um, the the forest can regreen quicker again, so um, that's really cool. I really like. So what was the, the what was the first step to bringing these beavers back then? If they're not there at the moment, what was the first thing? Um, building like little wooden or um, or made of stone structures that would sort of break the flow of water and create little ponds, or they would create like art like human made beaver dams, like sort of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, artificial beaver dams and then there would already be a pond and then they could release the beavers there and then they would continue building uh, in that pond and build new dams and build new canals and all of that. Um, yeah, and you could do that with beavers, but also even without beavers there, like some areas, they are too hot for beavers, um, but still just having these stone structures helps to... Um, have to stream to slow down the stream to the point that it has a chance to sort of seep into the groundwater instead of just rushing past the land. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's part of a bigger strategy to sort of um, re what's the word there? like redevelop or develop back 
what we've done before of like accelerating and and sort of linearizing all of these streams so where they, that we can do nice agriculture and, or build roads or whatever uh, where the stream was was in the in the way um and sort of undoing this damage um is is done partly by these these things and they're, they're quite cheap like other sort of traditional conventional ways of doing that in, involves like heavy machinery and costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars and these these um these uh measures are quite cheap to do i mean often they're done by volunteers but also you don't need any heavy machinery you sort of collect the rocks that you have in a in a in a location put them all in one place in the stream in a, in a specific way and then you've done that and then within like a week or two they build like two dozen of these little stone structures along the stream and that helps already a great deal so yeah that's in science news We're linking the article it has lots of cool images and a very cute stop motion video of the beaver at the end where you can see the beaver building the dam and then the fire okay, comes and in the end it has like a little flag that says like i'm i'm alive <laughs> well i'm fine it's 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 really weird to think sometimes of like how we you know cut through rivers and like stuff like history it's, it's such a weird thought sometimes we're like oh yeah this, this just like was completely diverted or this is now dried up this has been dammed like in a, a lot of the time you know yeah and the impact and then the thought of the next step of like trying to undo that and the implications of that i also it makes me very anxious as somebody with a background in conservation biology this whole like first we made a problem and then we tried to fix a problem which often makes more problems um i'm not saying this will but you know like this is kind of this awkward yeah yeah or but at least they're not really, I mean, they're adding some structures, but they are adding structures to sort of redo it, like slow down the canals again that we sort of accelerated. But yeah. So yeah, what astounded me was just like how uh, the, the massive work that the beavers would be doing um, to create all of these canals. So yeah, look at the pictures. They have a cool map, also like colored in all of the canals that beavers are digging and it's quite impressive. So Tegan, what did you bring? Yeah, I'm grumpy at me now because I just tried to call him. So I could show him a picture and I disrupted the flow of the podcast. All right, Yoram, look at this. Tell me what it is. Can you see? Wait, I'll turn it upside down. There we go. <laughs> it did not help that much. Um, it's To me, it looks like a pine cone that has locks, like the very thick strands of hair um, dangling about. Like it looks a little bit, yeah, un, un pine cone-y like. All right, what about this one? This is this your is face. Show and tell. Isn't this amazing? This now looks like somebody took a lot of like cigarette stumps and glued them to a stick. That <laughs> I can't even imagine what that would look like. Like the picture I mean, that I'm you looking me. at the image and I can't understand what it is that you're describing. <laughs> All right, what about this one? Is that that looks like a piece of hard candy stuck to a tree? <laughs> I don't think Yoram's descriptions are like even <laughs> slightly accurate to what I'm showing him. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just send you <laughs> a link. Um, next time I'm going to bring something that is less show and tell involved. So I'm, I'm sending you a link now. Just go and click on it. I thought I would follow up with. Um, last week's discussions about worms and talk about my new favorite type of worm which is bagworms and i think the name kind of says it all 
they're worms who make bags. Um, but the bags they make are kind of specifically from like plant structures. So they just look like bits of plants. They kind of make this cocoon around them, but it's often just using sort of found objects. Um, they're very uh, hipster like that, uh, including lots of like different sticks and twigs. And they they do look like part of a plant, except usually like the structures are sort of too consistent or, or too... Um, it's too structured to be a plant. <laughs> like they really look like small houses made of sticks. Yeah, they they look unreal. There's one where like um, a little bagworm has a very like in, intrinsically stacked tiny logs. It looks like something from an anime, like from a was it like the Miyazaki movies or like the like the the, <laughs> the popular anime that I didn't <laughs> didn't see, um, but where that you have like these sort of inhabited like spirit driven world um where i would imagine like a little beetle carrying his own little um wooden house with it um this is what it looks like it's really impressive <laughs> i want to say like some of them look like somebody just glues a, a bunch of cigarette butts to a stick i mean they can't all be glamorous i think also i mean the bagworm so it's it's like a moth species so it's like a little caterpillary worm thing that then becomes like a, a moth um <laughs> The bagworm family is fairly small with only about 1,350 species. So there's quite a lot of different bagworms and not all of them are beautiful, as Yoram has quite rudely pointed out. Okay, um, that's the bagworm. My second favourite worm of the day <laughs> is Trichoptera. Can you Google Trichoptera? Oh, that's, that rings a bell. Try. Called caddisfly. Maybe put caddisfly. C a d d i s fly. Too late. I spelled it trichoptera. Okay. So this is again kind of a fly thing. It's not a moth anymore. We're onto flies. Um, they're sort of um, insects which have sort of aquatic larvae, and the the grown up flies also look like they're related to water and streams. Right? They have these really light, delicate bodies and, and long beautiful legs um and <laughs> again i don't know how i found out i don't know um but i wanted to talk about a very special art exhibition that happened many many years ago but i only discovered it recently and it is um again related to the fact that these trichoptera the larvae make sort of a, a case you know a cocoon before they become not beautiful butterflies, but beautiful caddisflies, I guess. Um, and they do that by like gathering twigs and leaves and gravel and bits of sand and everything that they find around them. So, you know, to just pack stuff around them, close up house, and then, I don't know, sit for a bit, watch some Netflix, and then come out as a caddisfly. And um, an artist called Herbert Duprat, um, Duprat, maybe, um, decided that he would use this natural ability of the caddisflies, um, but put them in an artificial environment where instead of giving them sand and twigs and random <laughs> he would give them gold and jewels and turquoise and pearls. Um, so there's this really beautiful um, collection of cases made by these flies where there's just a bug that has covered itself in beauty and yeah, I really like it. I think it's a really nice example of science meets art because it's kind of really investing in this natural ability of the organism. And yeah. I don't know, flies can be pretty too, Yoram. I find it impressive that these flies um, 
they are not just like randomly sticking stuff on them. They have sort of a pattern, uh, a structure mm. that they follow. Like um, they use like first like smaller gold bits in this case, and then like a belt of pearls, and then larger chunks, and then sort of longer rod-like things. And sort of in, it it, mm, it looks mm. much more sort of. Um, I think I think that's what he made available in the Habitat at the time. I would guess. I think he would like when okay. it was first building. I, that's what I would guess because I don't know that they would choose like that otherwise like you can see different larvae with different patterns and i th i think maybe he just kind of oh he destroyed all of the magic yeah i mean you're right uh, very cool right yeah it's it's very cool um i'm just looking at sort of the natural ones that just use stones and the stones don't seem to follow that much of a pattern they are more randomly like stones from ranging to, from different sizes all put together so yeah it could very well be that the artist provided sort of the timing of the building materials and therefore decided what structure they would build. Still very pretty. Very, very pretty. So yeah, I found out a way to get more citations or at least to avoid losing citations in my citation count for papers and many papers that I publish. Um, there's a, an article that just came out um, um, like a, a paper that was published a co uh, alongside or and alongside the paper was an article in Science Mag. It's called "Want Other Scientists to Cite You? Drop the Jargon." And this is something that I um, care very deeply about. Jargon is something that I find extremely annoying when reading papers. I mean, we constantly read papers that are not, are not exactly our field of expertise. They're sort of related to plants, but not really this plant science that we did in the lab. And so very often we come across jargon, like specific terminology that's used in the field of the paper that we're reading. And it makes it so much harder to understand what's going on. Um, and now they did a statistical analysis where they looked at uh, how much jargon was present in the title and in the abstract. And they related that to the citation count. And they found a clear correlation that the less jargon you would put in your abstract or title of the paper, um, the more citations you would have. So every time you put like a complicated word in there that nobody, like only your peers understand, that means only your peers will cite you and people who are sort of once or twice removed, they won't understand what you're talking about and probably not put you in their references um, because they don't understand what you're doing. And jargon is sort of like a double-edged sword, right? It's, it's, sometimes problematic because you can't really understand it but very often these words are like packed with information you just need like one special word to describe like a whole thing um a whole complicated uh, concept that's also different from something else so um this um this means that jargon in itself it has a function but i think mm. what this, this study shows that this is something that you put into your text of the paper in your abstract and your title, you want to be understandable um, and you want to avoid jargon because this is not the place where you use the super condensed language. This is where you use the understandable language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess um, authors are often struggling. Like, I mean, the abstracts themselves have a really short word count, right? So then they're like using the jargon to try and reduce the number of words. But yeah, it's not it's not super helpful. Yeah. That's uh, really cool. Yeah. Um, and also one thing I wanted to mention here is that like using less jargon also means that you uh, make your, your papers more accessible to people who don't speak English as a first or second language or um, who only recently learned English and are working in science, which is, <laughs> as it turns out, a large part of the world who's not like first, lang first language English. Um, you're making it harder 
for people who are not as confident in, in English or not as fluent in English by using then also like specialized specific niche words. Um, so yeah, I read a paper the other day where the word kulm was used and I didn't know what it meant. And I looked it up and apparently it's the hollow stem of a grass or cereal plant, especially that bearing the flower. Except there's no, there's absolutely no way that that's what the authors meant by that word, that version of kulm. And I'm still confused and I have no idea. And I also like messaged a British friend and said, hey, my English sucks. Tell me what this means. Um, yeah. He didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still don't know. Yeah, so, see, yeah it and, can be hard. Yeah, that's why it pays off like on multiple levels to not use jargon in your title or your abstract. Seeing as we're talking about language, this has absolutely nothing to do with science. But I found out today. Um, okay, so there's the word loot. You know what loot means, right? To loot, like to take loot, to take winnings, to take stuff. Wow, did we just define the word by using the word? The word loot means to take loot. I had a day when I was reading about Machiavellism. You literally complained about this to me in a text today. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's hard. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's because I don't, I'm, I'm not a first language English speaker. Oh my speaker. goodness. Stop discriminating me, please. Um, yeah, but to, <laughs> but I mean, you mean L-O-O-T, that word. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I I really like the kind of etymology of of like well you know where where words where words originated from, um, like the evolution of language because I think it is I mean it's an evolution it is sort of watching this like species development process as words change and shift and adapt to to their environments. So anyway, the word loot. Please don't Google it. The word loot has two sort of different possible histories. Etymology number one. From the Middle Dutch lut, meaning scoop, shovel, scraper, which is linked to the Old Dutch and the Old German, Proto-Germaic, which is like lut, uh, which is a scoop or a ladle, mm -hmm. which I can kind of understand. Like a lut is a ladle. I can also see like the lut, the instrument. This kind of makes sense. Not super certain how that <laughs> relates to lut to lut. Etymology number two. Option number two. Taken directly from the Hindustani word lut, meaning spoil or booty. <laughs> also from the Sanskrit lunt, to rob or plunder. <laughs> Yo, guys, guess which one is probably more likely? <laughs> so somebody told me that this word has like um, an Indian like background and then I sort of wikied it and the first etymology that came up was like, oh, this is Dutch coming from the old meaning of a spoon. And I was like, wait, they're, firstly, they're wrong. And also secondly, like, what? How is a spoon? Like, do I take my gold bounty with a spoon? Is that like... <laughs> Maybe the bounty itself is the spoon. It's a silver spoon. I don't know. And then I looked down. The second um, is the the direct meaning of the word that was taken from the direct. You know, Great. I love it. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? It is. I on on the topic of um, weird words. I have a, a a fact that that I don't want to go deeply into. But I learned the word today of pathocracy. Have you heard of pathocracy? Or can you imagine what that is? So, like, a democracy. So, some sort of, like, system of government or ruling. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and then, like, patho. patho, like, pathology. So, like, something being wrong. Yeah. Like. Yeah, that's exactly where it's from. 
It's from, from something being wrong. Um, it's a term coined by the Polish psychologist Andrew Lobachevsky, and he describes a government consisting of people with personality disorders. Yeah, so something that we might have seen in the last legislation, like last term of presidency in the United States, but also in many other countries. And this is um, an article that has a, the promising title of How to Stop Psychopaths and Narcissists from Winning Positions of Power. Um, talking okay. about this like triad, like this dark triad of um, of being uh, a narcissist, um, a, a, <laughs> a psychopath, and also of Machiavellian uh, Machiavellist, which I had to look up, which is like following the the ideas of Machiavelli. <laughs> the end justifies the means. I, I I learned it as like being like cunning and planning and sort of having um, like intricate. Uh, oh, I thought it was it was colder than that. It's more like it doesn't matter like who you kill if you get what you want. Yeah, it's like yeah, and like if you have these personality traits, then you're sort of drawn to power, and you also succeed more because you care less about um, empathy, guilt, and emotion, and so on. Unfortunately, this article doesn't really give a good solution apart from having psychologists decide whether somebody is worthy of being in a position of power which would mean that psychologists are in some position of power because they can decide who would who is eligible problematic in itself so that's that's what i always wanted to be like not the one in the power but kind of like the puppet master behind the kingmaker the yeah <laughs> the kingmaker. so that's why like the article in itself doesn't really give me an answer of how to avoid doing that apart from like okay just shift sort of the problem one step forward to psychologists that suddenly we have to trust um but I like the, the term of pathocracy, um, a government consisting of people with personality disorders. It's a bit upsetting that we need a term for that, isn't there? So I have um, sort of two very quick things that I wanted to mention. And this is sort of related to um, identity and personality as it relates to also being a scientist. So the first one is there's a career column that came out a couple of days ago um, in Nature. And it's called How Pirouettes and Plies Prepared Me for a Research Career. It's by, I think, Ashling Roche is the right way to say that, hopefully. Sorry if I got that wrong. Um, and it's just talking about her sort of experience as being a, a ballet dancer and how that taught her how to be criticized and also how to improve and, you know, performance, getting confidence boost and also, you know, gave her something that she was doing outside of, of science, you know, a separation. And I think that's something that we've been talking about a bit recently when we've been doing our Instagram, like April Science Challenge thing, what we do off work. Um, discussing how <laughs> we think it's really important for scientists to have hobbies and have other things they love apart from science. Um, I think hopefully everybody agrees with that now, this idea that, you know, your science should be your entire life. Maybe not, maybe, maybe two other things as well. Um, so there's that. Um, you can go and have a read of that. I, I like that now, I mean, Nature's a huge paper. I like that they are now kind of, also promoting this by featuring these kind of career columns, right? Like this seems like we're acknowledging that that even scientists are multifaceted human beings who have have a life outside of the lab. Um, and the other one that I like, like it's really really beautiful. I it's a bit of a longer read, but I mean, really sit down and spend the time and have a read through it. Um, it's written by Ariana Remmel, and it's in I think Catapult magazine. So Catapult.co will put the link in. 
and its organic chemistry taught me to fully inhabit my mixed identities. And this is talking about um, like background, um, like uh, racial identities, but also um, gender identities. And yeah, it's it's really really good. Um, I will just read one really quick quote. It's about going to an art gallery um, when um, 16 years old and sort of seeing some art and there's a note attached to it and the note says, my mother is a woman and my father is a man. That makes me half woman and half man. I'm astonished. I read the note over and over again, but it will take me years to fully understand why it resonates. And I really like it. It's really beautiful writing. It's really... It's really great. Go and read that. Everybody, that's your homework. <laughs> that's all I have to say. Thank you, Tegan, for even more homework now. <sighs> Cat fact. And today I have one. Uh, I want to play you something um, and then you can tell me what it is what, or what you think it is. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> I didn't make this. I want to make my. <laughs> We're probably gonna get copyright. <laughs> it goes on for a little bit longer, but I'm sparing us the details. Um, <laughs> you have an idea I mean, it's animals the... making music, right? No, it's not. <laughs> It's a happy birthday song for pets. <laughs> I'm out. Okay, and that was our show today. This is Plants and Pipettes. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. <laughs> We also have a website, www.plantsandpipettes.com. We usually blog there once or twice a week, but we didn't write anything um, this week because we're doing kind of an Instagram thing of posting every day and talking about different experiences related to our life as scientists um, outside the academic world and also like our general lives. Um, so you can follow us on Instagram to see what's happening there. Yeah, it's quite fun. Every day, a new prompt. Um, and I can only recommend to subscribe to directly to Tegan. So she sends you in the morning, like, give me something on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> and then I scramble um, and do something, but it's really fun. Like it's something like uh, otherwise I would not do, and that's the point of it, right? Like doing some cool things that you otherwise wouldn't do. Um, we have a website. Oh, you just said that we have a website. <laughs> Opening and closing oh music God. is Caravan and Philip Cross. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>